take a Bible and let's go to James chapter 1. And uh, today we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 8, which focus on our need for wisdom and the God who gives that wisdom. So I'd like to start reading today in verse 5 and then pray together before we get started. Hear uh, the Lord's word, in, uh, starting in verse 5 of chapter 1 of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Father, you are a generous God. And we confess a great need for wisdom. Uh, We need your help now and Understanding the text before us, and we don't want just understanding, we want to know uh, how you should move us uh, throughout our days with a text like this one, um, how it shapes our humility from day to day, and, and how to continue to cry out to you for this wisdom. Uh, be with us now by your Spirit in the teaching of the Word and It's reception by the people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So sometimes when you read James, it feels a little bit disconnected, like a bunch of uh, sayings and commands without any relationship to, to one another. But the various points James raises, actually, they, they fit together like, like links on a chain. And, and sometimes uh, James uh, does this for us by bringing up um, different connecting words that interlock each section of, of the passage together. And, and you find one of those connecting words actually in uh, verses 4 and 5, linking the two sections that we saw last week and this week together. Um, but you can see there in verse 4, he says uh, that you may be perfect, complete, Lacking in nothing. And then verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So you see the lacking in verse 4 and the lack in verse 5. And James is helping us make uh, an important connection. Uh, We need to connect our lacking in Christ-likeness to our asking for Christ-likeness. Uh, being perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, we saw last week, is basically James's way of, of talking about Christ-likeness. The wise person in verses 2 to 4 is the person who endures various trials like Jesus. Or better, whose steadfastness through trial ends up making him more and more like Jesus. But now James points out that such a wise, Christ-like life is impossible by our own doing. Uh, You and I lack wisdom for living such a life. 
You see, we hear James say things like, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Let steadfastness have its full effect in you. This is the wise Christ-like life that James wants us to live. But then we find ourselves in the middle of our trials. Our trials start bringing the heat to our faith. And we're going, uh, how could such an outlook on life right now be possible? Uh, Do you really know what I'm going through, James? How can somebody endure what I'm going through with such a deep, settled contentment in God? How is it even possible to remain steadfast when everything about this pain makes me want to give up? Or maybe it's not pain that you're experiencing, but plenty. Uh, God is prospering you, filling your plate so full that you can't handle it all. And you're about to break under the pressure. And you're likewise asking, what am I supposed to do with all this? How is it possibly going to be taken care of? How do I not snap under the stress of all these people? How do I not make shipwreck of my faith for another master like money? Our various trials expose that we lack the wisdom necessary for the trials to produce Christ-likeness. It, it shouldn't surprise us that James follows trials with prayer. Uh, our, prayer our, our, our trials expose our feebleness, uh, our, our neediness, our desperate condition. They humble us. They, they break us. They, they bring us to our knees till all that's left sometimes is cry to God, help. That's all we can say sometimes is help. Do something here. Save me. James wants us to make the connection. If we're going to grow in Christ's likeness, then we need God's wisdom in all our various trials. What is this wisdom, though? Perhaps a definition of wisdom will help us as we move forward in our passage and in James, especially since wisdom is sometimes misunderstood as the mere accumulation of knowledge or just, you know, you're, you're old and smart. Um, that's not all that wisdom is. James mentions wisdom explicitly only two other places, only, only two places in his letter. Uh, and that doesn't mean that's all he says about wisdom. In fact, I'd say that the wise life in James is very comparable to the spirit-filled life in Paul. Uh, I think we'll see that as the, as the letter goes on. But as far as explicitly mentioning the word wisdom, all we get is right here in, in, in our passage. And then again in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And when you read about wisdom in both of these places, you, you can make several observations. Uh, it, it comes from above or from God. Uh, it's, it's very practical. It's not just head knowledge. It, it, it produces good works. There's also a moral and ethical quality to it uh, that's that's grounded in in the word of God Uh, and it also uh, the that oral and 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 mythical that oral and we don't want to do that uh, that oral and and ethical component is uh, is in relation especially to our actions and our speech towards others 
uh, to the degree that, that the goal of those actions and, and speech end up producing peace in, in, in the community. So from these types of observations, we, we might define wisdom like this. I'll put it on the screen and we'll, we'll try to tackle it. I think this wisdom, this, this definition will, will grow just a tad as we move through the letter of James. But uh, wisdom is the God-given ability or skill to act and speak according to God's word and thereby reflect God's character in every situation. It's the ability to, or the skill to act and speak according to God's word and thereby reflect God's character in every situation. It, this really complements the Old Testament teaching that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So it's not mere head knowledge. It's not mere life experience. It's, uh, it's also not a look into your future as if God gives, this, gives you certainty on what that should, should look like. Rather, it's the skills you need to reflect God's character in all that he brings into your life. And if you think about it, we were created to depend on God for this wisdom. Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which is the tree God told them not to eat from. Uh, But it wasn't that God was withholding something by telling them not to eat. He was teaching them to delight in the wisdom of their creator. By telling them not to eat from that particular tree, he was helping them see that they didn't have the ability to determine good from evil. Only God had that ability. They had to trust fully in their creator's wisdom. Instead, Adam and Eve chose to live independent of God's wisdom. And what a tragedy that was. Choosing to live a life independent of God's wisdom. And instead embracing a kind of self-fabricated satanic wisdom. They plunged humanity into death and chaos. And so there's many exhortations in the Bible that that humanity return to God for wisdom. That humanity once again delight in the way that their maker set things up. That humanity fear the Lord, for this is the beginning of wisdom, and so on. And we do get a few glimmers of hope, like with King Solomon, of, of what humanity could be if they were filled with God's wisdom. But none of them have any permanence. They all keep forsaking God's wisdom, even King Solomon, just like Adam and Eve. Our only hope, the Bible tells us, was that God raise up a Savior who himself would possess God's wisdom and would undo the chaos that Adam and Eve caused and Isaiah promises this Savior the spirit, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge of, and the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And this, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Spirit-filled and anointed Jesus without measure. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's own 
wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom. Everything Jesus does is the way of wisdom itself. Matthew 11, 18 and 19. Jesus acted and spoke according to God's word and thereby reflected God's character in every situation. And through Jesus' cross and resurrection, Jesus becomes our wisdom, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.30. You read it earlier. So what was lost by Adam can now be gained in Christ, found in him. And, and, it's, and it's this wisdom, this wisdom in Christ that often surprises us, doesn't it? It, it, it confounds us. Uh, the way down as a slave is the way up in God's kingdom. The last is the one who becomes first. God's power is perfected in our weakness. We have to become fools in the world's eyes to become wise. We have to die to ourselves in order to truly live. Who has this kind of wisdom, naturally speaking? Nobody. It's only gained through a union with Jesus as a gift from God. And it's within this broader framework that James comes in, practically speaking now, and says, hey, if you lack the wisdom that we see so exhibited in Christ, and all of you do, then ask God for it. So wisdom is the God-given ability or skill to act and speak according to God's word and thereby reflect God's character in every situation. It's the wisdom that we need to act and speak like Jesus in every situation, especially in our trials. Where then do we get this wisdom? Well, James says it comes from God. It comes from God. We, we have to ask God for it. He says, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Wisdom is always a gift from God in Scripture. That's why nobody can boast when they have it. It's a gift. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that wisdom is uh, automatic. We must ask God for it. Uh, pro, uh, like Proverbs tell us, we must call out to the Lord for insight and raise our voice for understanding. And when we do, God is pleased to give it to his people. And I want you to see the extravagance of the promise here. It says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. The promise isn't that he gives you everything and anything you want, but that he will give you wisdom. You can bank on it. It's God's word to you. And notice four things about this God who makes such a promise. Number one, God is a giving God. It's part of who he is to give. Uh, he lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He is absolute source of all things. He is by very nature the giving God. He loves giving. And when he gives, number two, he gives generously. The word more literally carries the idea of, of God giving simply or single-mindedly. That is, uh, his giving isn't like human giving, which, you know, usually has all kinds of strings attached. Even if not expressed, I'll give you this if you give me that. And since you paid me this favor, I'll pay you back. The picture here is that God gives without reservation 
to his children without calculating all that they owe him. He's not dishing it out to collect interest. It's a pure gift. Number three, he also gives without reproach. And and this is kind of the flip side of the picture of his generosity here. There's no reluctance in the gift that he gives. There's no reluctance. As, as As if he's saying, well, it's about time you ask for wisdom. You know, don't you know any better? Or um, what are you going to do with it? Waste it like you did last time? That's not how God gives to his children. He's not frustrated when we come to him with our needs. Even though we might deserve a rebuke sometimes, God's giving is without reproach, without accusation, without adding insult to our coming to him. He simply gives to us. And then finally, number four, God gives to all his people. There is one sense in which God gives to all people in general, like when he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But, but here we're dealing with the gift of wisdom to believers, to Christians in particular. So the, the all are those in the church. It means that God doesn't show favorites inside the church. He doesn't favor pastors over lay people in giving wisdom or scholars over the less educated. He doesn't favor the older over the younger in in giving wisdom or men over women or the rich over the poor or one ethnicity over another. He doesn't give to seasoned believers more than the new believers. He gives to all in his church without distinction when they ask him. Every child that comes to their heavenly father, he delights to give them whatever they need to follow him. Friends, this is this picture of God. This is the basis for our prayer life. God's generosity. This is the motivation we have for prayer. You know, I wonder how many Christians don't pray much because uh, they don't know God's generosity. Not just know about it. You probably hear about God's generosity a lot. Maybe you read about it too, but you don't know it deep, deep in here. I wonder how many Christians don't pray because they don't know God's generosity. God is generous beyond our wildest dreams. He loves giving good things to his children. How did Jesus lay it out for us? You know, which one of you, he says, is if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have a generous Father. And how generous is he, we might ask? He gave up his only son for you. That's how generous he is. There's no gift superior to the gift of God's only Son. There's no one of higher value. No one more treasured by God. 
No one more loved by the Father. Nothing possessing greater riches. And God gave him up freely to die for our sins. To put Jesus on a cross under his wrath in your place and in mine. We have a generous father. If, if he didn't spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And that includes wisdom. A rich prayer life doesn't grow merely by adding prayer to your daily spiritual disciplines. Though such a means of grace are necessary and good. Rather, a rich prayer life grows when you truly embrace your Father's generosity. You know, some of you didn't grow up with a daddy who was all that generous towards you. Perhaps it was more difficult for you to ask him for anything out of fear of being berated. Out of fear that he'd complain even more about what he has to give. Maybe you didn't grow up with a daddy at all. And so it's harder for you to imagine a generous father. Your, your circumstances never allowed you to experience your earthly father's generosity. But no matter what history that we have here on earth, when we believe in Jesus, we're adopted by a very generous father in heaven. And he... He lavishes wisdom on his children when they ask for it. He loves giving to his children. The more you see of God's generosity, the more you will come to him, the more you will pray. God's generosity should motivate us to come and ask, no matter how much we lack. But James goes on, he says there's more to this picture. We, we've looked at our need for wisdom. We've looked at our God who gives wisdom. And now let's look at our asking for wisdom. There's a way to ask and there's a way not to ask. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The way to ask is what James calls in faith, and the way not to ask is what James calls with doubting. What can we make of these two kinds of, of asking? Let's begin with the doubting one. It says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. It's very common in, uh, for the Bible to, to contrast doubting from faith. Uh, Jesus does this also in the context of prayer. Uh, Matthew 21, 21, Mark eleven twenty three, are good examples where he's asking them to possibly, you know, with faith and no doubting, cast this mountain into the sea. Uh, we also see it in the life of Abraham, at least as Paul uh, paints a picture of the whole of his life. It's not saying that, that Abraham never had moments of doubt, but in terms of the whole picture of Abraham's life, uh, Romans 4.20, uh, 
describes Abraham's life like this. No unbelief made him waver. And that wavering there is the same word that James is using here, this doubting. No unbelief made him waver concerning the the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So we see this this contrast between doubting or wavering and and, and faith. Uh, Romans 14.23 is another place. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So when we look at these, these different things, and James here, we're actually seeing that doubting is faith's opposite. But I want to be clear. Yes, we should bring our questions to God. Just read the Psalms. <laughs> read the Psalms. We should bring our questions to God. Yes, we should also confess our doubts to God. We, we can be like the man in, in uh, Mark, Mark 9, 24, who says... Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay? And yes, the Bible also encourages us to show mercy to those who doubt. Jude 22. James doesn't have in mind the the honest questioning we might encounter as we bring our uncertainties to God. Rather, the doubting he has in mind speaks to a divided loyalty. A divided loyalty. Even the psalmist who brings his questions and doubts before God still shows loyalty to God and his kingdom. But the man who doubts here is one with divided loyalties. You see, he's not committed one way or the other. Uh, look, Look how he describes the person who doubts. He's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. No stability in his convictions. Uh, Isaiah uses the same imagery to speak of the wicked in Isaiah 57, 20. James also calls him double-minded, which goes along with the the waves of the sea illustration. This this double-mindedness... He wavers between the wisdom of God and the the folly of the world. He's like the man who who tries to serve two masters, which Jesus said was was impossible. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, he's he's like Mr. Facing Both Ways. You remember Mr. Facing Both Ways? He was friends with Mr. Smoothman and Mr. Two Tongues. His life shows no integrity. No single-minded commitment to God. He, he asks from a heart that wants God's wisdom, but not if that wisdom interrupts his plans and his desires and his worldly pursuits. And it affects more than just his prayer life. It affects everything in his life. James says that he's unstable in all of his ways. So we are fools if we think that our view of God is just a private matter. It affects everything in our lives. We become unstable people in all our relationships with others. Why is that? Well, because what the double-minded man really wants isn't what God gives. God gives wisdom to reflect his character. And that's what faith wants. Faith wants God above all. 
the doubter still questions whether God is worth it or not. So when we ask from this place of doubting and and, and double-mindedness, prayer malfunctions. If we ask God for wisdom from a place of divided loyalty, then he says we ought not to suppose that we will receive anything from God. James 4.3, we'll, we'll say it again, but just a different way. When he tells them, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he goes on to talk once again about the double-minded person who wants friendship with the world and God at the same time. Not possible. We could think of Psalm 66, verse 18 here. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Do we think like that? If, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you're divided in your loyalties... If that's the general pattern of your life, then prayer malfunctions. We shouldn't presume that we'll receive our requests. And we also shouldn't charge God with fault in not granting our requests. As if he's not generous. He's not giving me what I want. We shouldn't charge him with fault if that's how we want to to live in this state of double-mindedness. Now, is it true that God in His kindness, in His marvelous kindness, sometimes answers prayers despite someone's double-mindedness? Yes. But let's not presume upon His kindness. Let His kindness lead us to repentance. How about you? I mean, do you ask God for wisdom? Maybe even ask Him for other things, but while clutching to other allegiances, your loyalty is, is divided? In contrast to this kind of asking with doubt is asking in faith. What does he mean by asking in faith? Well, obviously, it's it's the opposite of of doubting and being double-minded. It's coming to God with a a single-minded commitment to His revealed will in Scripture. You know, James uses this expression, in faith, again in chapter 2, verse 5 where it says that the poor are rich in faith, and there he's talking about their personal trust in Christ. They have confidence that he will fulfill his promises and and make them heirs of the kingdom. James will also go on to say that faith in Christ produces good works. Faith not only says that Jesus is Lord, faith shows that Jesus is Lord. In, in what we do. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, James says that it's the prayer of faith, the prayer of faith that God uses to save the sick man. And, and the emphasis there is, is a little different than what we see here in, in chapter 1 um, because the prayer of faith suggests some level of, of God-given assurance that God will perform the healing. But there's overlap in that faith is always submitting itself to the revealed will of God in every situation. So when I put these things together in the way James is talking about faith throughout his his letter, um, 
Asking in faith means to ask with this single-minded commitment to God's revealed will. To, to, it means to ask uh, trusting in God's character with a willingness to obey Him with all that He gives. Trusting in God's character with a willingness to obey Him with all that He gives. This is the same thing that Jesus would develop. You know, that when in uh, James, uh, James, John's Gospel, chapter 15, when He says, Whoever abides in Me and I in Him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But then he goes on to say, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you asked the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So the point of asking and then receiving from God is that we then might live our lives and bear fruit for him and for his kingdom. So we're trusting God's character as we call out to him to provide with a willingness to obey him with all that he gives to us, to bear this fruit of the kingdom. When we confidently and quietly rest in the character of our generous God, and, we, and when, we take, when we take that other foot out of the world and put both feet in Christ's kingdom and seek to obey Him with all that He gives, the promise here is that He will give us the wisdom that we need. We, we can trust God to provide the wisdom. So the question at this point becomes, you know, how are you asking God? How am I asking God? Are you only turning to God for wisdom once you've exhausted all your other options? Um, Are you single-minded in your prayers to Him? Like, Like Christ, not my will, but your will be done. Does he have your whole heart, or are you still trying to serve two masters? Are we wanting his gifts while still loving the world? Do we really want what his wisdom will mean for our lives? That's the hard one. Do we really want what his wisdom will mean for our lives? I want you to think back to our definition of wisdom just for a minute. The the, the God-given ability... To act and speak according to God's word and thereby reflect God's character in every situation. If that's really what we want, then such wisdom will regularly call us to radical sacrifice. Uh, A radical pursuit of peace in all of our relationships. In the home, outside the home, in the church. It will call us to a radical patience with other people's sins. Uh, A radical 
love toward the lost people that God puts in your life. A radical compassion for the poor. A radical stand for the truth at at work. A radical gentleness when, when others revile you. It's the wisdom we see displayed in Jesus when he can say in the midst of his suffering, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Such wisdom will regularly make us out of step with this world. Let's take a man who is full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom from the scriptures as an illustration. You may recall that that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. His life was spent pouring himself out in in service to the widows and the church, and, and his life ends with his opponents, it says, not being able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking to them. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 10. Peter goes on to speak, of course, and and they finally become so angry with Stephen that they all stone him to death. And amazingly find the same words on his lips, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wisdom is costly. It won't end, it it won't always end in in martyrdom like, like Stephen, but it'll be costly. Wisdom is costly because our salvation was costly. It cost God His only Son. But it was a cost He was willing to pay to see you and I redeemed. I mention that so that you see the fuller picture of what you're really asking God to give you when you ask Him for wisdom. You're asking God to give you a wisdom that makes you more like Jesus And that wisdom has a cross attached to it. And it's a wisdom that's worth having. I mean, after all, our hope is that others see Jesus in us in all that we encounter in life. But it's more than that. I mean, we want to see him. We want to see more of Christ. Just like Stephen did. As they stone him and he looks and sees heavens open in the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. So how is James calling us to live this week? He's calling us to live in humility before God, in thanksgiving to God, and in dependence on God. In humility, we must admit that we have a need for righteous wisdom. When your trials expose your lack of wisdom, the place to begin is humble confession and admission that I need wisdom, God. The church isn't a people who think they have it all together. The church is a people who humbly admit that they don't have it all together. That their words and deeds don't always reflect Jesus in every situation like they should. And that we do need more wisdom to look like Christ. But the church should also be a people who live in thanksgiving to God. 
Because in the midst of our lack, we can turn our eyes to a generous Father. We can be thankful because we have such a generous Father. God is, is the one who possesses all wisdom. He has revealed that wisdom in His Son, Jesus Christ, and, and He loves to share that wisdom with all who believe in Him. He gives generously to all without reproach. He never gets frustrated with our requests. He delights to hear from us. Even in the midst of trials, you know, we can be thankful that we serve such a generous God. We can help each other remember His generosity and together thank Him for His generosity as we walk through really tough times together. And then finally, the church lives in dependence on God. We ask, we, we pray, we, we cry out for God to give us His wisdom. A person who doesn't pray much can't expect to be very wise. As James also says, you do not have because you do not ask. It's chapter 4, verse 2. Growth in wisdom happens through our praying, not apart from it. And this is where you and I need to live, in this prayerful dependence on God. Asking throughout our day, asking in our scheduled quiet times and in our spontaneous trials that we encounter. God is with us in everything and in Christ He has opened a way for us to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. This is what Hebrews teaches us. So draw near to Him in your time of need, in your trials. Ask in faith and our Father will be pleased to give you wisdom.